Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to James chapter 1. We're going to continue walking through the book of James. Uh, We're going to look at verses 19 and 20 today. And uh, there is no, there are no preaching notes because it's really easy this time because the, the notes, the three-point sermon note is already evident in the passage, so I didn't need to tell you what it was. So we're just going to follow that along. James 1, 19, 20, we'll get to that in a moment. Sarah Coakley says that a mark of maturing is that we learn to moderate pleasure. We learn to moderate pleasure. If we're speaking in terms of spiritual fruit, that would be self-control. And there's a particular pleasure that our culture would do well to learn how to moderate, and that is the pleasure of speaking our minds. And the more that we speak our minds to one another as a culture, the angrier our culture gets. And one of the ways that the church has gotten off track over the years is by taking on kind of this loudmouth characteristic of culture. You know, we live in a world that thrives on outrage, anger having an opinion and feeling the incessant need to share it, unconstrained speech, belittling the opponent, and certain people who claim to speak for Christ have been very opportunistic with this and decided that imitating culture in this way is a good strategy to attract attention and grow a movement because it works in the culture, so let's bring it to the church whether it's a talking head on the radio, a politician, the new culture warriors, or even pastors. Anger, outrage, cynicism are the new seeker-friendly movement of the church. Aligning ourselves with values and tones of culture in order to draw a crowd. Anger is big business. When I first started preaching, I sounded angry most of the time. Because you're young and you're insecure and you feel like the louder, the angrier you are, the more people will listen. It'll make up for a lack of deeper theology. And as a preacher, there were all sorts, all manner of justifications available. I could say things like, it's my prophetic leaning. I mean, look how angry the Old Testament prophets were. They were really mad. My Old Testament professor, Mark Janiliat, said, if the king looked out and saw a prophet in his midst, he knew it was going to be a bad day. Well, the only problem of modeling a preaching ministry off of some Old Testament prophet is that there are no more Old Testament prophets. There are no more need for that type of ministry in the way that we often think 
about that in our caricature of what an Old Testament prophet was. There is still a need for a prophetic voices, but not with the same tone. We've transitioned. Our job is not to belittle the world and tell them how idiotic they are. <laughs> our job is to proclaim the good news that the great shepherd of their souls has come to give them life. And if it wasn't for him, we would be making the same decisions and arguments, but, but God's not mad at us and he doesn't have to be mad at them either because of Christ's work. Our tone should not be that of anger and belittling because Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. John three seventeen. Paul tells us clearly in 1 Corinthians 5, we're not to be judges of those outside of the church. Inside the church, we have things to say to one another, but not outside of the church. Our job is to point them to life eternal in Christ with the same grace that was shown to us. So let's get back to what I said at the beginning. Christians are to moderate pleasure, so we're not to give in to the pleasure of giving full vent to our anger. We're not to just become like the rest of the world. Proverbs 29, 11 says, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. That's what today's passage is about. Would you read with me if you're there? If not, you can just listen. James 1, 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every, every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. That's our outline. Quick to hear. First, we are quick to hear the word of God, which um, Daniel Ackerman is going to be preaching next week, Chad and, one of Chad and Jill's sons, and he's probably going to be touching on the fact that we ought to be quick to hear the word of God. So I'll let him talk about that as much or as little as he'd like. But this is also about very practical instruction. Remember we said that James is like a wisdom book, and it gives us very practical, real-life takeaway application and instruction this is one of those pieces it means we don't go into a conversation with our guns loaded <laughs> we go into a conversation with a posture of curiosity listening not telling not speaking at the person without concern if they're listening i was on a walk this week with someone that i love very much and um I started preaching, which is what I'm most comfortable doing in conversations when I feel like I just need to give an answer. I just start preaching. I start telling them all the right ways to be thinking about this thing. And then at the end of the conversation, while we were at Five Guys Burgers and Fries, or maybe while I was eating Five Guys Burgers and Fries at home, I had to apologize to my daughter because I didn't listen. I said, I didn't ask you one question on that walk, did I? The whole time around Oak Hill Park, I didn't ask you one question. She said, yeah, you did right before we were about to get into the car. I have important things to say, and I think everybody should listen to those things. That's kind of the posture of our culture. Speaking at 
one another instead of listening to understand. If you are someone like me who indiscriminately gives advice, stop. (laughs) Here's a good rule. When there's an opportunity for you to give your all-knowing counsel, pause and ask three questions before you even think about giving advice. You might be surprised to discover that the questions they're asking aren't really what they need answers to. You know, Jesus in the gospel is asked 183 questions. 183 times people ask Jesus a question. How many of those do you think he answered? Three. He was asked 183 questions and answered three of them. He asks 307 questions in the gospels. Jesus' way of discipleship might be just as effective as our way has been as a church. Probably more effective. It's asking questions so that you can give an answer that is more like a sniper than a buckshot. If you just indiscriminately start telling all the answers to everything you know because you get nervous, you're going to miss answering the thing they're really asking. And remember, Jesus literally had all the answers. (laughs) And he asked more questions than gave answers. And perhaps the most overlooked ingredient in helping someone else grow, helping someone else see their need for Christ in his life, is listening Asking questions and deep listening. So I'm being trained to listen in conversation in three ways. One is to listen to the person speaking to me, and that's harder than you think. You know that's difficult. That is not easy. The hardest place in the world to be is where you're at because you're thinking of a million different things and you're thinking of all the things that you want to say, so we're really not listening to one another. It requires incredible humility to actually listen to someone. Because it requires going into the conversation acknowledging that I might not know right now what they need to hear. It requires a major shift from giving quick advice to actually listening to what they're saying. And this is hard for Christians because we've got all the answers. (laughs) How many questions did Jesus ask? 307. Perhaps Having all the answers, no matter how, many, how theologically sound they are, perhaps that's not enough to disciple another human being. So I'm being trained to listen to the person speaking to me, and then I'm being trained to listen to the Holy Spirit. So as you are listening to this person talk, you're also attentive. If you have been following Christ for a while, if you are in Christ's family, he gives you this gift that is himself in the form of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is meant to help you through all, every aspect of life. And especially and particularly as it comes to helping other people grow in their relationship with God or helping other people see their, their need for God. So as you're listening to this other person talking to, you're also listening for the Holy Spirit. You're listening on three levels. What are they saying? Two, what's the Holy Spirit saying? And perhaps he brings a verse you've memorized. Perhaps he brings a thought from your quiet time that morning. Perhaps he brings a teaching that you heard years ago to mind. Perhaps he, he could bring anything he wants. 
the more you know about God, the more the Holy Spirit has in his arsenal to use through you. So you're listening for ways that he might want to speak to this person. And sometimes the Holy Spirit just says, just cry with them. They don't need a theological treatment of suffering right now. Job's friends said a lot of very accurate things about God and still sinned against him. Listen, pay attention. Sometimes they do need to hear what's true about God. Sometimes that does need to be corrected. But make sure it's not ego. Make sure it's actually out of love from God. And the third way you're listening, so to people, to the person talking with you, to the Holy Spirit, you're also paying attention to the inner wisdom, the things that you've learned on your journey with God over the years. Listen more, advise less and more carefully. The second one is we see in this passage is be slow to speak. The older I get, and I'm 100% serious on this, I, this is actually not meant to be funny. It is funny. It's not meant to be funny. The older I get, the more shocked I am at how uninterested most people are, here, are at hearing my opinion. I mean, I've got a lot of really interesting things to say. And I cannot believe that more people aren't just like showing up to my doorstep with a notebook, like, just start talking, Greg. Just start talking. <laughs> like, that is, it's silly, but it's so true. It's shocking as you get older to realize that people really aren't all that interested in, in most of the things that you have to say. You think they are, but they're not. Or in hearing my stories, which is really difficult because I got a lot of great stories. I struggle with what a lot of pastors struggle with, and that's theological flexing. <laughs> it's obnoxious. It's wanting to impress someone with something that I know about God that will serve to fix this entire conversation and put and frame everything correctly for everyone who's listening. It's theological flexing. It's goofy. It's more about the person saying it than when, what God actually wants to speak into this situation. When we were on our shepherd team retreat um, a while ago, one of the things that we did was for every meal, we would um, draw a couple names and if your name was drawn, so everyone had to do this at least once, if your name was drawn during that meal, you couldn't speak. Now, for some people, like me, that's harder than for other people. Other people are like, awesome, I didn't really want to talk anyways. But some people are like, you know, used to being a prominent voice in pretty much every conversation. It's interesting what happens when you do that regularly. Other people that are usually quiet get a chance to speak. They actually have a voice. They have things to say. You begin to realize that silence, as my spiritual director says, breaks our habits of controlling our environments and the people in it. We use language to control people. We use language to control situations and circumstances. We use language to flex. 
But words spoken out of silence have more weight and energy to them. It's easy to tell when someone is speaking out of silence and when someone is speaking just to hear themselves speak. My daughters are experts at determining the difference when it comes to me. Now, this doesn't mean that you just walk around as a quiet and kind of somber, serious person. It's not what we're saying. I was at an Akron Rubber Ducks game last night. I was not quiet. I was probably having more fun than anyone in the stadium last night. I was trying to get on the dance cam. I was living it up. I was, I was doing it all. My wife was super embarrassed, but I was just like, I'm going, full, I'm going all out, full throttle. So it doesn't mean that you, can't, that you lose your personality. It just means that when it's time to speak about the more important things in life, that you're careful and prayerful and you're not saying things just to impress yourself, which is my go-to sin. This is a danger for pastors. When you are theologically equipped, you are very impressed with yourself often and I have to be very careful of this. I've said before and I heard this from someone else that you know what they do to pastors? They elevate them a couple feet higher than everybody else in the room. They amplify their voice. They give them an attentive audience, and they tell them to be humble. You know how hard that is? When we speak, we speak with the rule of love for the other person. When it comes to the weightier things in life, when it comes to biblical counsel, we only speak out of love and grace, and things that would genuinely edify and help that person grow. My spiritual director also says, silence enables our words when we speak to be full, rich, substantial, full of grace, strong, edifying, and appropriate to the moment. When Kara and I first started meeting with this man, monthly over Zoom, he's a professor in California and a retired pastor who now disciples, mentors a multitude of other pastors and preaches in a variety of different churches in Southern California. Um, when Karen and I first started meeting with him individually over Zoom on a monthly basis, one of the things that struck us that we weren't used to when we started this, I don't know, two, couple, three years ago, was how profoundly attentive he was to every word we said. How he listened so carefully. He would spend the first 55 minutes listening asking questions, and then say something in the last five minutes that would shift the weight of everything. Because he had this deep reservoir, he will forget more theology than I've ever known, this deep reservoir of theological convictions and was like a sniper looking for that one little thing, the question I didn't even know I was asking that he would discern and then speak 
life. And when he spoke that way, it would change. It literally has changed our lives. B. Joseph Pine II says, the experience of being understood versus interpreted is so compelling you can charge admission. Listen to understand. Speak out of a deeper understanding. Don't just go in knowing what they're thinking, knowing what they're going to say. Listen for understanding. We emphasize personal ministry at Southside. One of the skills we want to develop is we want all of you to become black belt conversationalists. And it begins with, until we get to the more formal training at some point, after the shepherd team figures out what does it look like to become a member of this family. So there will be some formal trainings along with that. Until you receive that, if you want a clue on how to become a black belt conversationalist is ask a lot of questions. Ask a ton of questions. I realize how poor I am at this when I'm around people who ask a lot of questions. I was with a beloved and dear Southside friend on Thursday, and, I, and it was three hours of us just talking. And I was convicted afterwards because he asks a ton of questions. And I talked for three hours. He probably would say that's not true, but I felt like I was talking for three hours because he was so good at asking questions and then follow-up questions. He was interested. You could tell he spends time thinking about me in order to ask questions. That's profound. Three hours is like that. I want to be that type of conversationalist. We should all want to be that type of conversation. It's a good example, a good model for me. The last one, slow to anger. A quick word about appropriate anger. Appropriate anger happens, it's a proper response when a boundary has been violated. You're allowed to be angry when a boundary has been violated. Every one of us in different ways throughout our life will be hurt by other people. You're allowed to be angry. And one of the difficult things for people who have been through some type of trauma in the church and they go to visit someone like me is them wanting to rush right past that and say, I'm, I'm not going to be angry. I just totally forgive the person. And you, you, you're not ready to forgive the person. You haven't felt the full force of the anger. You're allowed feeling that. Let it do its work so that the Spirit of God can genuinely heal your heart. It's okay. Let yourself feel that. You'll get to the forgiveness. But if you rush it, you're not actually forgiving them. You're just saying you are. And you're just sounding really spiritual. And I know you don't feel that way. That's appropriate anger. Now, having said that, for some reason, in some Christian circles, anger has become one of the fruits of the Spirit. We have a name for it. You know what we call it? Righteous anger. I have no idea what that means. There's been some really good academic articles on righteous anger, and if that's actually a biblical thing, I'm not sure it is. Often, the person labeling their anger as righteous anger is just looking for an excuse to be self-righteous. 
Anger is not a fruit of the Spirit. It's something to be confessed. It's something to be con- confessed and repented of. Hebrews 12:15 says, "See to it that no one fails to obtain, obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and it may become defiled." Colossians 3:8 says, "But now you must put them all away: anger, wrath, malice." Ephesians 4:31 says, "Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you." along with all malice. Jeff Gibbs, in his article, The Myth of Righteous Anger, I'm going to read this because I can't say it better. But it has to do with the way that we deal with a world that is living in rebellion to God, making up their own rules as they go, literally sounding insane. Guess what? We were once like that too. And we sometimes are still like that in the church. And we often forget that we were saved by God's grace and we look at the world in disgust, in contempt, which is the worst type of anger. We have to be very careful of knowing how to speak and know truth without condemning because there's only one voice in the universe that's whose sole responsibility, as we've said before, is to condemn people. And you don't want to be partnering with him. So how do we talk graciously about and to a broken world? Jeff Gibbs, The Myth of Righteous Anger. He says this, in my own involvement in, let's say, the pro-life arena, which is something that we are pro, we are pro-people living. In my own involvement in the pro-life arena, listen, before we get out any soapboxes, I've become more aware than ever of how often pro-lifers speak and write and act in ways that flow directly from their own anger, their own contempt, disgust at people that aren't as good as us. In a practical sort of way, it seems pretty clear that angry speaking or acting will rarely prove persuasive or helpful. It only preaches to the choir of other pro-lifers who are also really angry. So I decided that I would like to do something to change the tenor and tone of things. Ironically, the few times I've tried to teach such pro-lifers about the New Testament's teaching about anger, these persons become angry at me. And I'm not proud to say, I, in return, was angry at them. This motivated me to think and study more about the topic. One more paragraph. Some have said to me, but anger motivates you. See, this is why it's a good method to use if you want to grow a church. It draws a crowd, it motivates, it gets a lot of other people screaming at the world too with you. He says, but anger motivates you. It it makes you get up and do something. This is certainly true, he says, at least in my experience. I ask in return, however, why should it take anger to get me out of my inertia? This is where we turn to righteous anger, holy anger, holy discontent. Why do I not find sufficient motivation in compassion or 
courage or mercy or simply the greatest fruit of the Spirit, love for my neighbors. Why not that as something that moves me? The fact that it takes anger for me to actually do something strikes me not as a reason to extol anger, but as a reason to repent of my coldness of love and hardness of heart. My prayer should be, Lord, fill me with love for my anger and for those in need so that I may serve and help them. Anger is lazy. It's a lazy reason to live for the glory of a shepherd who saved your soul. What if the world looked at us and instead of anger they saw love? Now, I'm not talking, for those of you who are already pushing back on that, about mushy permissiveness where we affirm that it's okay to do whatever you want to do. That's not, that's, it's not love, good grief, that's violence. But what if we were just as concerned with the tone and timeliness of our words as we are with telling people how wrong they are? What if we focused more on telling them how right Jesus is? What if we made godly wisdom the rule of our speech, which you will learn from later in James, is pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Anger isn't a fruit of the Spirit, even when you put righteous in front of it. One of the most difficult things that someone who has been following and growing in the Lord over a course of years and decades is that as you learn about God and his kingdom and as you look out into the world, you do see not only hurt and brokenness, but you do see rebellion against the living God. And all I'm suggesting is that we become a little bit more thoughtful and a little bit more attentive to our own hearts as we are proclaiming the king that died on a cross for us. And that we be more focused on the assignment that Jesus has given us, and that is to make disciples of all nations more focused on that than we are of telling people that you're not disciples of Jesus. You have the message. Stop telling them how wrong they are and stop tell, start telling them the answer. And if they don't listen to you, it's not your problem. And if they kill you for it, it's not your problem. We are about evangelizing the world, spreading the gospel of Jesus, that's our mission. Making disciples of all nations. That's our mission. Accept the suffering that comes with being a follower of Jesus and don't whine about it. <laughs> it's a privilege. It's a privilege to suffer for him. Perhaps a practice. When you're having a conversation with someone and you begin to sense anger beginning to rise, 
pause and ask God, where is this coming from? I don't want to just be lazy and say, this is righteous anger. I'm mad because God would be mad about that. That's easy, cheap. Ask him if there happens to be any sin in your heart that's participating and partnering with the anger. I dare you. Is there anything in my flesh that I'm personally offended or angry about this? Deal with that. And you will become more trustworthy to share the gospel. And you will do it more fruitfully. Quick to hear. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. Now, I got to preach about this today, and I'm really excited because you're not going to see me for the next two Sundays, so you can be mad at me for a little while. But by the time I get back, you're going to be happy with me, and you're going to like me. You're going to forget all about this. But this is a genuine challenge. This is something I want us to be thinking and praying about. Let's be different in how we speak to and about a lost and broken world, and let's not forget where we would be if it was not for the grace of Christ. You haven't saved yourself. You haven't even sanctified yourself. You, have, you haven't even matured yourself. All of that is a work of grace. So thank God for it and spread that grace to others through the work and the life of Jesus and his resurrection. All right, that's it. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, I'm speaking about something that I probably struggle with more than anybody. I can be self-righteous, and I, can, I have this anger thing that rises up in me quite frequently. I was praying about, speaking about anger this morning on the way here, and someone in front of me was really slow, and I got really angry at them. <laughs> Good grief. It happens all the time. I'm speaking as someone who needs your grace. I'm speaking as someone who feels like they could confess of anger pretty much nonstop, who needs your grace nonstop. God, would you help us to be a church that that sees our own sinful tendencies, our own judgmentalism, our own disdain, our own anger, and confesses that to you, and repents, and receives life and help from Jesus. And in so doing, clears the path of our hearts and souls to be more loving, more joyful, not take ourselves so seriously, more peaceful, where people can be around us and not feel like we're vibrating with emotion and anger and anxiety and tenseness, more patient, more kind. I hate when I hear people saying, Jesus didn't die on the cross to make you more kind, that's one of the reasons he died on the cross. Not more good, more faithful, more gentle, more self-controlled, especially with our speech. 
Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us, sinners. It's your strong name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.